My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. We're all familiar with innocent until proven guilty, yeah? We also understand that here in Canada, there's going to be a little wait between when you're arrested and charged and when you actually get that chance to prove yourself innocent, or even just to plead guilty if you'd prefer. And by a little wait, I mean that depending on the charge, it can take a couple of days, a couple weeks, a couple months, or anywhere up to a couple of years. In the meantime, if you can't afford bail or don't have anyone to act as your surety and vouch for you with the judge, you're in jail. Sorry, you're on remand. Technically not in jail, but doesn't matter. You're in a correctional facility. And then, you're out of luck. Then anything can happen. In some provinces, there are far more people in jail on remand awaiting trial than in jail doing actual time for crimes they've been found guilty of. And sometimes, through illness or violence or suicide, the worst occurs. And those people die in a cell awaiting trial. How did things get to this point? Why are so many people not yet convicted sitting behind bars for so long? Isn't there a better way to do this? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Gina Mortfield is a court and crime reporter for The Brandon Sun. This story, an in-depth look into deaths on remand, was written for The Walrus. Hey, Gina. Hi. Why don't you start by telling us about T.J. McConnell? Who was he? So T.J. was, I would say, your regular Canadian kid. He grew up small-town Alberta, liked sports, um, played a lot of hockey, Um, His mom told me that he really cared about how he looked. He was always concerned about how his hair looked. He was just a nice kid. He always wanted to help, his mom tells me. His girlfriend told me that um, they met in their early teens on a beach in Hawaii when both of their families were on trips there. And when he was happy, he'd do this dance where he'd kind of shake his butt. And she once um, asked TJ why he did that. And he told her, because it makes you smile. So just, you know, a kid with a lot of potential. And, you know, his family just describes him as a really, a really nice kid and someone who who wanted um, a nice life and a, a family and a home, just a place to call home. And we're talking about him in the past tense, obviously. So what happened to him? So TJ suffered three concussions as a kid and his doctor told him to stop playing sports. His mom told me that this was really hard for him. 
And in 2015, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, as well as depression with manic episodes. From there, he struggled with opioid use. At times, he was sleeping rough. You know, his mom had told me that he started stealing. And eventually, that stealing left him. um, He was arrested and he ended up in the remand center in the fall of 2020. What does it mean to be in a remand center? What is it? What's it like inside? So a remand center is basically where people are held um, waiting for the court to deal with their charges. They could be there because they're unable to get bail while they wait for a trial or eventually they may plead guilty. They could also be in a remand center because they're waiting to get transferred to another correctional facility, or perhaps, you know, a judge has granted them bail, but they're waiting, you know, to meet a release conditions such as maybe having a bed at a addictions treatment center or something like that. And, and so while people on remand can also be held in provincial jails, but a remand center in particular is a facility dedicated exclusively to the remand population. And what happened to TJ in there? TJ was sent to the remand center in September of 2020. And about four months later, on January 11th, 2021, he was found in his cell and a medical examiner determined that his manner of death was suicide. Do we know anything about his time in there that that led up to his suicide? Do we know what he was struggling with? I mean, you mentioned he's bipolar, but how was he doing inside there? You know, correctional facilities in this country are notoriously hard to get information from. But what we do have is basically medical request forms that TJ had submitted in the jail. If you need something, you have to fill out a piece of paper asking, you know, the jail or the remand center for for this service. Um, and so a stack of TJ's uh, requests show that he had been, while he was in there for uh, four months, he was repeatedly asking the remand center for various things, including, you know, treatment for anxiety, depression. Multiple times he was asking for Suboxone, which is a drug that treats opioid use disorder. And he had previously been on, like he had been on that drug um, before in a previous attempt before he was in the remand center to, to try to get clean. He multiple times indicated that he, he didn't want to use drugs anymore. He wanted to turn his life around. He was, he expressed a lot of fear about when he he would leave the remand center or when he was released, he was worried about going back out on the streets and and being surrounded by people, um, you know, who were using drugs and that drug scene. And and he really expressed a desire to get clean, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to get this suboxone treatment. He wasn't able to uh, get adequate treatment from a psychiatrist um, to deal with the mental health issues he was expressing. And ultimately, he took his own life. How common is TJ's situation in general? Four months in a remand center waiting for trial, uh, trying to get help. I mean, he's not in there on spectacularly bad criminal charges, I guess I would say. 
Yeah, that's fair. He, you know, remand stays typically are supposed to be a week or a month, but increasingly court delays have been contributing to a problem of people staying on remand longer. TJ was in the center, uh, the remand center at, you know, in 2020, and we know there was a lot of backlog because of the pandemic. So while his stay was perhaps a little longer than the average, um, it's definitely not uncommon for people to spend time waiting for their charges to work their way through the court system or get a trial date, you know, essentially sitting there, you know, innocent until proven guilty. They've, you know, TJ, when he died, had not been convicted or found guilty of the charges that he was in there on. So what is common, um, however, is access to healthcare. That has been a common complaint remand centers, provincial jails, federal prisons across this country for years, uh, decades. You know, the access to Suboxone treatment or sorry, opioid uh, use disorder treatment has been increasingly an issue. You know, a lot of prison advocacy groups are speaking out more about uh, this uh, treatment as a, a charter right And jails uh, and prisons are supposed to provide health care treatment. They are supposed to take care of the people that they house in their facilities. That is their responsibility. And so they do have to provide treatment. Unfortunately, a lack of resources, many cases, or just apathy on the part of remand centers and jails contributes to the lack of access. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. and We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. When we talk about people and people on remand waiting for their charges to work their way through the system, how many people overall are we talking about here? What's the scale of this? And how is it trending uh, now that the pandemic restrictions have loosened up? For sure. So last year, there was about 14,414 people on remand. So that's out of the total population of people in provincial custody. And, you know, that number may not seem terribly high, but when you look at the number for the same year of the total number of people who are serving sentences in correctional facilities, in provincially run correctional facilities, that number was 5,798. So we're looking at, you know, the population of people who are sitting in provincially run remand centers and jails, essentially sitting in custody, numbers of those people legally innocent is more than double the number of people who are who are actually found guilty and serving time in those facilities. How does that breakdown happen? Where's the disconnect here that, I mean, 
you know, listen, we can talk all day about the lack of resources in prisons and jails, and we will talk about that, but there's more innocent people than convicted people in those facilities right now. How does that happen? What's broken? It's probably a number of factors. We know that since 2004, the average number of adults in the remand population in provincial correctional facilities has been greater than the adult uh, sentence custody population. So, you know, this is this has been a trend that has been happening for quite some time now. And it does pose a incredible contradiction. You know, the presumption of innocence until proven guilty is the foundational principle to our justice system in this country. And to have more people doing time in jail having not been convicted than people who are actually uh, convicted spending time in jail, that is that is quite an issue. And I think court delays certainly have to contribute to that. Of course, it is, there's a lot of conversation um, now about bail reform, but I think these statistics show, um, you know, a lot of people aren't getting bail. Uh, they're still sitting in those remand centers. And, and so when we look at you know, I think TJ's story is quite in, instructive of someone who is not able to get bail. It's very difficult for people to get bail who are unhoused. I mean, one of the conditions, you know, to get bail, judges like to see someone who has a stable place to go to, the security, people who can, um, you know, be their surety. They want to see some money put up for someone's release. And those things are very difficult to do for people who come into the remand center because other social services like addictions treatment or mental health care um, have failed them and they've had to resort to, to stealing or getting in trouble with the law, which is, of course, not a good choice. And of course, they need to be held accountable. But, you know, un unfortunately, it is a symptom of more and more people coming into to these facilities who are falling through the cracks of, of social services. What's supposed to happen to somebody like TJ in an ideal world? And where are the missing resources? I mean, ideally, we wouldn't have a justice system where we have you know, more people sitting in jails unconvicted um, than we do have people sitting in jails uh, convicted. And I think with TJ in particular, you know, he had tried to get a bed just the summer before. He tried to get a bed in an addictions treatment center. He was unable to, to get that bed and, you know, things just sort of spiraled for him. He also had, in addition to the addictions issues he was struggling with, he also, you know, had these mental health issues, which it's difficult to find a facility that can help him with both. Um, at the time, um, his mom told me that the pandemic was contributing to the lack of bed availability. And I think that experts and advocates have been telling me that, you know, of course, jails and remand centers need resources to help the people that come into these facilities. But what really needs to be funded is the services and facilities 
that exist outside of the remand center. So, you know, treatment facilities, access to mental health support, employment services, community supports, all of those things can help catch someone like TJ and perhaps, you know, even prevent him from being in the remand center in the first place, or at least being able to enter the remand center without, you know, being in this state where he's experiencing withdrawal symptoms from his drug use and just thrown into this facility, which ultimately its main goal is to detain people. Its goal is not healthcare, it's to detain people. And so, you know, he wasn't able to to get that help on on the outside and unfortunately, wasn't able to get it on the inside either. Obviously, the system should just work faster for everybody charged with the crime, but how often does it end like this? Do we know how many more TJs are out there in the system? Well, I mean, it's difficult to quantify because, you know, even fortunately, Alberta does uh, publish a document which Um, After every death in a a public institution, there's a public, what's called a public fatality inquiry, and which is essentially a public hearing about the death in which, you know, it's a a justice of the peace will look at all the evidence and circumstances surrounding someone's death and determine, you know, if there was any wrongdoing or any, if there's any recommendations for how to prevent a similar death. Unfortunately, that system in Alberta has been backed up. There's now a four-year wait time for a hearing. So it's difficult to tell. And and of course, jails are not the most forthcoming with when there is a death. And releasing a, a medical examiner's report on the circumstances of that death. So it becomes very, very difficult to to quantify. But on that public fatality inquiry list, it will it will have a name, you know, TJ's name is there. It has where he died in the Edmonton Remand Center and the way in which he died. And there are about 10 other names on that list dating back to as far back as 2017, up until this year or last year, that have, you know, names of people who died in the Edmonton Remand Center and their manner of death is is listed as similar to TJ's. So so he's definitely not alone, unfortunately. And there are many, and that's just one remand center. That's just one remand center. It is the largest by capacity in Canada, right? But it's certainly not the largest correctional facility in this country by any means. You mentioned that advocates are pushing for more resources outside of these remand centers, so people like TJ can get help before they get in there. That's good. That's uh, that's progress, but. My question is, what would it take to actually speed up the system? Because ultimately, people are going to be charged with crimes and they need a fair trial at some point, preferably quickly. Is there any political will to do that? What do people say it would take to make the system work as intended? So I, I think it's it's always difficult for there to be political will when it comes to spending money on people who are called criminals. I think a lot of people do think that the people who are in remand centers or jails are like Paul Bernardo. But, you know, I've talked to dozens of people in every 
level of correctional facility from provincial to federal prisons, and that's just not the case. I think there are a lot of resourcing and staffing issues in the court system, but I do think that in terms of having more of a social security net that fewer and fewer people fall through, that means that fewer and fewer people will end up in the remand center, you know, because like TJ, he was not necessarily stealing for profit. He was stealing out of necessity and he was an addict and he did want to change. He he did want other things in life. So there was certainly potential for him to, um, you know, if he was able to access treatment, he he perhaps would have stuck with that. But that is what a lot of advocates are saying is, you know, we've let these correctional facilities become places where people end up when social services fail them. And, you know, that isn't the point of what these institutions were designed to do. So they're scrambling to figure out, you know, that they do need to provide health care, but the populations in these facilities have grown to such an extent that it's difficult to to get the kind of resources they need when a politician is certainly not going to get much public support for spending more money on a quote-unquote criminals. Gina, thank you so much for walking us through this problem. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Gina Mortfield, writing for The Walrus. That was The Big Story. If you want more big stories, we got literally more than a thousand of them at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always suggest more to us by finding us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, by writing us an email and sending it to hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or by using an old-fashioned phone, an old-fashioned flip phone if you have one, because those are super cool. And leave us a voicemail. The phone number is 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. and We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.